Would you take your Bible tonight and turn to Psalm 68? Psalm 68. Psalm 68, I'm going to read tonight the first... 18 verses. I don't think we're going to get that far, but it'll give us at least the setting uh, of the first portion of this psalm. The psalm is titled, For the Choir Director, A Psalm of David, A Song. And we actually began looking at this last week, really just in an overview fashion to kind of orient ourselves to... uh, Some of the details of the psalm, hopefully an overview of the psalm, try to do that again tonight. Uh, I think the statement that stands out to me as I was studying, I shared this last week, is that one person said he felt like he had to have the Holy Spirit gift of tongues to be able to give an exposition to this psalm. Uh, I don't have that gift. I'm not going to try to do that. I don't think we have any interpreters here tonight either, but I trust that the Holy Spirit will give us some help as we look into the psalm. And if we were to just give a big picture theme to what this psalm is about, uh, I think it's helpful to think in terms of an event, and that is a procession, procession of the ark into the sanctuary. Verse 24 in the psalm says, They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. So when you think of a procession, particularly one that's accompanied by music, there's some grandness, there's, some, there's a triumphant uh, character to it, and I think that's what we're seeing in the psalm. There is certainly praise to God that is called for and given and a procession that takes us to the very temple mount. And we get to see some of that, but part of the procession is the songs of Israel singing the victories of God as they go up to that place. So it's as if The king is coming to his throne, and there's the procession and the sounds, the songs of his victory. And, of course, this is a king like no other. This is God who, verse 33, rides upon the highest heavens. And uh, as it begins, if you remember, the words with which this psalm begins are connected to the song of the ark, which is the song that Moses sang, the blessing or the prayer that Moses gave as the ark set out. And so let's begin reading verse 1. We'll read down through verse 18. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. 
As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is Yah, or the Lord, and exult before him. Verse 5, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness for the poor, O God. The Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Kings of armies flee. They flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalmon. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. I began last week to kind of give a, an outline to give the big picture. I tried to give that in synopsis tonight. And I realized I didn't really complete it. And so I just wanted to kind of give you, as you look at the psalm, already tried to draw attention to the theme. But if we were to follow this psalm from the call at the beginning the first words, the song of the ark to the end, what are we looking at? And I started to give uh, Spurgeon's outline. I'll go ahead and give that so that we don't uh, miss it. I have my own. It's similar. Um, But just listen to what he has to say and, and try to follow along as you're looking at the psalm. So if this is a procession, the first two verses of this procession the ark is lifted up. If it's done properly, obviously it's the Levites who are carrying it. And the words, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, coincide with the lifting up and the beginning of the moving of the ark. In verses 3 and down through verse 6, those who are accompanying certainly those who are looking on, are exhorted to begin singing. 
And then there are reasons given as to what they can sing about as they sing about God. So the gladness, verse 3, the singing, verse 4, but then it draws attention to who God is in his majesty as he rides on the clouds. And that is uh, one translation of that word deserts in verse 4. Certainly he did take them through the desert, but he also rode on the clouds as he went through the desert. And that word is translated differently, but I would take it that way. And then there are aspects of God's character that you can see in verse 5 and verse 6, things that God does that show his excellence, his goodness. And then following that call to praise for the righteous, there is then a rehearsal of the victory of God through the wilderness uh, to Sinai, and then into the land. And it's from verse 7 and down through verse 10. You go from Egypt in verse 7, when it says, O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, and then the following events, the earthquaking, that happened certainly at Sinai. Sinai is mentioned in verse 8. And then following Sinai... And this is definitely contracting the history of Israel to a very small portion, but it tells us of what he did as he took them into the land, as he provided for them a good land, verses 9 and 10. And so this is Yahweh on the march as he goes from Egypt to Sinai and then into the land with his people. But then in the land, we know as we read through Joshua and Judges, that there were battles fought to take the land, and there were times where the land was lost. And uh, a signal victory, a great victory of Israel, maybe one we're not so familiar with, is alluded to in verses 11 through 14. Uh, The victory of Israel over its enemies, Jabin, the king, as he's called, the king of Canaan, Sisera, his general, and all of the allies with Sisera. That's the battle that's referred to in verses 11 through 14. And so this is the victory, certainly, of the Lord over Egypt. And then they came into the land. There was victory there. But now there's a signal victory when they're in the land. And there's details there that are worth taking some time to examine. Remember, this is a song being sung as the procession is going along. So it's God on the march, victorious, victorious over Egypt, victorious over his enemies in the land. And then, verse 15, and down through verse 19, Spurgeon says, these are the joyous shouts that become louder as Zion comes into sight, and the ark is borne up the hill. Okay, so as that procession moves... The ark is coming, the people are following, accompanying. If this is the time when David led, he is uh, dancing, leaping before the Lord, rejoicing with all of his might. And there's a view from verse 15 and down through verse 19 of the mountain. 
and there's a, a, a connection to the other mighty mountains in the area that may be great and majestic in terms of their sight looking at them, but this mountain, Mount Zion, is the mountain that God desired to dwell in. And so he comes along, verse 17, with his angels, and he ascends to Jerusalem, and he blesses his people, and he has blessed them with salvation. You can see that in verse 19. Now, once the ark gets up there, the singing is not done. The song continues. Spurgeon says, On the summit of the mount, the priests sing a hymn concerning the Lord's goodness and justice, the safety of his friends, and the ruin of his foes. So verse 20, this testimony to who God is and his greatness, his glory, his justice, ultimately his victory. You can see in verses 22 and 23. And then the procession is described further in verse 24 through 27 in terms of what the enemies saw. What did they see? And this gives us a little insight as to what it looked like because you're given specific Uh, description, verse 25, of singers, of maidens using tambourines, of the tribes that are there along with this procession worshiping God. Okay, so there's what the enemies look on and see, and so it's kind of another vantage point. And then, verse 28 through 31 is... As, and I think this is an accurate way to put it, an anticipation of a time when there is a wider conquest, when Israel's uh, dominion spreads even further through the earth. Um, particularly verse 29, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. Among the other nations that bring gifts to God include, verse 31, Egypt, Ethiopia. And those kingdoms sing praise to him. And this praise in verses 32 through 35 is like that final uh, chorus of bursting forth praise to give honor and glory and majesty to God. Sing to God. And it's It's as if Israel has now been joined with all these other nations singing praise to the majestic God of Israel. So I I think that's a, a very helpful way to look at it, in part because there is coherence to this psalm, in spite of what some have said, that this is just a collection of poems. This is not a just a collection of poems. There's certainly references to previous scripture, necessarily, but it's all done in such a way, brought together in such a way as to make this beautiful composition, which would have been appropriate. Uh, Some people view it this way. I tend to look at it this way, that this was actually when David decided to take the ark from the place of its resting at Obed-Edom's house into Jerusalem, that he composed this for that occasion. 
Was it used later on in Israel's history? Perhaps. But you could certainly say that what has happened and is referenced in the psalm had happened prior to David's time, and it is recognized as a psalm of David. Now, one other thing I want to point out before we continue and start looking at verse by verse. Uh, One writer said, In this psalm we have special reason to condemn or admire the timidity or the caution and delicacy of our translators for the manner in which they've rendered the names of the Almighty. Now, he may have been speaking about a previous translation, but what he draws attention to is that the names of God in this psalm are buried. They're not the same name throughout. And so, if you look through the psalm, verse 2, at the end of the verse, so let the wicked perish before Elohim. Verse 11, Adonai gives the command. Verse 14, it's the Almighty who scattered kings. Uh, Verse 20, you look down when it says, God is to God, uh, God is to us a God of deliverances. And to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Um, When you see God in all caps like that, along with the word Lord, uh, in some translations, depending on the order of the words, it could be Lord God, but that is an occurrence of Adonai as well as Yahweh. So this is the name of God connected with that title, Adonai, and it's a strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Down in verse uh, 20 as well, the first part of the verse, it's not the word Elohim that's translated God, it's El. So El is to us, and then again there's an occurrence of that same name, and that is an emphasis on the mighty power of God. And so, in other words, in terms of the procession, in terms of the, uh, the way in which this was composed, the writer took care to not just use one name for God, but throughout he's drawing attention to the glory of God in all of these names and titles. And uh, whenever God, of course, gives a name in Scripture, it's meant for our meditation, our reflection, our understanding of who He is. And we praise God for who He is and what He's like, and that is oftentimes reflected in His names. Just the name Almighty gives an emphasis about who God is. So when we go through the psalm, uh, there's that too. So it's just uh, one of those things about the psalm that help us to see a careful Uh, psalmist to craft this in such a way as to draw attention to the glory of God. So let's look verse by verse as we look at this psalm. Look at verses 1 and 2 as we see an imprecation against all the enemies of God. It is, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. This says, Uh, I said, is the song of the ark, and 
Take note of how it's spoken of here. Keep a finger here and turn back to Numbers chapter 10. See a difference in the language slightly. Moses is speaking to the Lord directly in Numbers 10.35, telling us the custom of Moses when the ark set out, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. There's also the song that was used as the ark came to rest, but it's particularly verse 35 that is alluded to and almost quoted in the psalm, but it's slightly different. There it's, rise up, O Lord, but in Psalm 68, it's, let God arise. It's using a different title for God, and it's also not addressing God directly. There's a petition, and it's a petition with a prospect. As this prayer is answered, God is rising up. God is scattering his enemies in answer to this petition. And of course, God's enemies, as they're described here, verse 1 says they are his enemies. They are, end of verse 1, those who hate him. Verse 2, it is the wicked. So these enemies, and the word enemy it refers to armed military enemies, the word that's used here. Those who actually oppose God with their armies, like the Philistines, like the Egyptians, and so forth. It also can refer to as those who are personally enemies, but in the context here, this is those even nations who are arrayed against God. And the call here of David as he writes this psalm is let all of those enemies, whoever they are and wherever they may be, be scattered. May they, verse, 20, uh, verse 2 rather, as smoke is driven away, so drive them away, just like smoke disappears as it comes from the fire. It just dissipates. And then the other image that's given is wax melting, which just dissolves in the presence of flame. And our God is a consuming fire. And there is no one who can stand before him. And he is opposed to the wicked. And so as he rises up in his might and power and rides through the clouds, there's really not anyone who can stand before him. And even if the enemy comes from behind, which Egypt did, you remember what happened? The cloud which had been going before the children of Israel went behind them. The angel of God who was in the cloud went behind, and the Lord looked down at the Egyptians and opposed them. The Egyptians knew. They said the Lord is fighting for Israel, and their chariot wheels were swerving, and God brought about a great victory that day because no one can stand before God. The wicked cannot stand. The ungodly cannot stand. Those who hate God will never win. But in contrast, this call for God to deal with his enemies is the call for the righteous to rejoice. The call for the righteous to rejoice. There's the emotion, verse 3, let the righteous be glad. Let them, we saw this word this morning, exult, this great rejoicing. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness because of the greatness of God, his dealing with his enemies, and because of who he is. 
as a good, gracious, faithful, merciful God. So the call is to be glad in your emotion, to use your voice with great rejoicing and exulting, but then to sing praises to God because he's worthy of praise. And so this imprecation, verses 1 and 2, is followed with an invocation to those who are looking on, and certainly if you were in this procession, you'd be maybe learning this psalm ahead of time. I don't know how they distributed or if this was singers who they could listen to, but now there's uh, words for them to sing or to listen to as they're uttered in praise to God. As this song is lifted up, attention is drawn to that same one who went out before them out of Egypt, who rides, and again, mentioned this before, but in verse 4 when it says, lift up a song for him who rides in the clouds. Uh, Our translation has through the deserts. If you compare translations here, uh, you'll see that sometimes it is translated through the clouds. And if you look at the end of the psalm, just take a look over at verse 33. It says, to him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times. Verse 34, ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel and his strength is in the skies. Now that's not just a reference here in poetry. It does have a reference to the actual events coming out of Egypt. There are also within scripture times when attention is drawn to this image of God, God leading his people God victorious in battle as he leads them and rides upon the clouds of heaven. Deuteronomy 33, 26, There is none like the God of Jeshurun, who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. Isaiah 19, 1, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So God riding on the clouds, coming on the clouds in victory or to do battle with his enemies. So can we see then further? Could you see this within the context of the whole Bible? God in the clouds? I mean, it certainly testifies to the fact that God is above us, that he is in heaven. But when we look at the Gospels, we see that Jesus testified that he would come as the Son of Man with the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7 says the same thing of the Son of Man. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And yes, it is right to see Jesus Christ in the clouds, leading his armies, the angels, victorious in battle. This is a picture in the Old Testament of our great God, but Jesus will come. He will come with his angels. The myriads that are spoken of in this psalm down in verse 17, those angels, those holy angels belong to God. Jesus will come in the glory of those angels, accompanied by those angels. And so this is a testimony to the transcendence of God, his greatness above us, his limitless power to move wherever he desires. We are earthbound. 
we're finite. Fastest we can get to places is if we ride on a fast plane, but God is not limited in that way. There's no hindrances. There are no hindrances. And of course, Scripture also says He's omnipresent. But when we're talking about the visible presence of God and His glory, His throne is borne up, Ezekiel tells us, by cherubs. And just read Ezekiel chapter 1, and you see that throne moving and those angels moving, and then one who's above them, who is described as the glory of God. And what is his name? Lift up a song for him who rides on the clouds, whose name is Yah or Yahweh, and exult before him. The same God receiving the praises of his people riding on the clouds is the sovereign, self-existent, life-giving, unchanging, eternal, personal God of the universe. This is our God. Lift up a song to him. What is he like? Isaiah 34, excuse me, Exodus 34, as Moses asked, show me your glory. And the Lord passes in front of Moses and he declares who he is. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. This is our holy God. There is none like him. Who is like God? He's worthy of our praises. And that's the call at the end of verse 4. Exult before him. Rejoice before him. So if you were to think about, in terms of people who knew God and wrote about God in Scripture, even this psalm, David here, there's a reason that David was leaping and rejoicing and praising God as this procession moved along. This was God, his God, the God who had delivered him, the God who'd rescued him time and again, the God who was worthy of praise, the God who is, as he said in Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength and shield, my heart trusts in him and I am helped, therefore my heart exults and with my heart, or with my song rather, I shall thank him. Now, this same great transcendent God who rides upon the clouds, who is sovereign and self-existent, and all of those truths that draw attention to his glory over us is also near. His transcendence is matched here with his imminence, his nearness to his people, his love he reaches down in condescending love. Verse 5 says, A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. And that reference in verse 5, at the end of the verse, the holy habitation of God is in heaven. And so this is, this, this is one of those verses where you see both. It's our father who is near to us, who has brought us to life, but it's our Father who is that near, who is also in heaven. 
the Father, God, who is a father of the fatherless, a judge of the widows. That's what he is in heavenly glory. He condescends in love to care for those who have no father, who, who have lost their primary caregiver, who it says here that he is a judge for them, that he decides what is right and he does them good. And this is referenced here in the psalm, but you could see in the law when God said himself, Exodus 22, you shall not afflict an, a widow or an orphan. If you afflict him at all and he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. He really is acting as father. He says, and my anger will be kindled and I will kill you with a sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That sounds pretty serious. Yes, God is a fierce fighter for those that he protects. He's also a judge for the widows. Deuteronomy 10 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. And then it goes again. For he executes justice for the orphan and widow. And he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Now those aren't just bare propositions. They can be fleshed out with illustrations in Scripture. When did God take care of a widow or someone who was fatherless? Well, he sent Elijah to that widow in Zarephath in Sidon. He said to Elijah, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. That provision that she made for Elijah was because God was providing for her as she came to believe that God was true and that his word was true. If you read through the story there in 1 Kings chapter 17, and that's one among others, another one that stands out to me is when Jesus was coming into that city and the funeral procession was coming out and you had a woman who had lost her only son her husband had already died. She had no one to care for her. But here comes Jesus in his love and compassion. Woman, do not weep. Seemingly callous, except he knew what he was about to do. What was he about to do? Young man, I say to you, arise. Raised him up presented him to his mother. That's the care of God. That's the greatness of God the Father reflected in God the Son as he came to earth and ministered to those who were in need, those who lost their primary caregiver and support. David said at one point, Do not hide your face from me. Do not ever turn away your servant in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. And it could be translated, My father and my mother have forsaken me, or he could, have, uh, he could be saying, If they do. But he said, For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. And I don't know fully what your circumstance is, but if you know the Lord... You have someone to care for you. If you know the Lord, he is a father of the fatherless. He's a judge for the widows. This is a part of his glory. Not only that, we're six. God makes a home for the lonely. 
He pours down His grace upon the needy as He establishes the lonely in a home of their own. And if you want to see that fleshed out in experience in Scripture, you could see Naomi. You could see her loss. You could see her gain with Ruth. And then God's provision of a grandson for her, a continuation of her family. This is God, gracious. Psalm 113 verse 9 says, He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. And while she had a husband, Hannah was in that circumstance, had no home of her own. She had her husband, but that was all, and she wanted children, and she prayed, and God brought her a child. And not only that, but more children after that. And I think by way of extension, if we could think in terms of this dispensation, what God is doing now, God makes a home for the lonely. When you come and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you realize that immediately there's a set of relationships that are established. You put your trust in Christ and you have a father. You have an elder brother. He's also your savior. But then you have a host of brothers and sisters. And that's a family. And it's not to be minimized. That's what Scripture teaches And so it may not be a home in terms of what the world would describe, but it certainly is company along the way in life. Those to come alongside of us and support us and help us. Praise the Lord for his graciousness, his condescension, his pouring out his grace. It's not only a home for the lonely, it's prisoners out into prosperity, verse 6 goes on to say. He leads out prisoners into prosperity. As I was reflecting on that verse, I thought an exposition on that verse is just Joseph's life. Read about what God did for Joseph, and you see a prisoner unjustly accused, false accusation, lands him in prison where he is forgotten, 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 except God did not forget What did God do? God brought him out. And talk about prosperity. Not only brought Joseph into prosperity for himself and gave him Manasseh, whereby he forgot his affliction, and Ephraim, God made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. God gave him a home. But God gave him such prosperity that he was able to take in then the the children of Israel, Israel, Jacob, and all of his sons, and all of those souls that came down into Egypt. This is God making a home for them in a time of famine, uh, providing for them, bringing them into Egypt. And then when they became imprisoned, just as Joseph was in a sense, because they kind of followed that, right? Joseph had been in prison, he came out, but then Israel became enslaved and in bondage. They were slaves to the Egyptians eventually when a king arose who didn't know Joseph. And what did God do? Well, after those plagues, they plundered the Egyptians and they had enough stuff as they came out to not only build the tabernacle with gold and silver and all sorts of things, 
but they had so much that there was an abundance. Moses had to say, stop giving. There was prosperity there, even among the children of Israel, who obviously then he took them into the promised land. But then notice in verse 6, this majestic God who does pour out his blessings graciously gives a home for those who are lonely. He sets free those who have no liberty. But thirdly, he also withholds blessing from those who rebel against him. At the end of verse 6, it says, only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Parched land refers to what is bare or burned. There's a reference to the burning of a land, certainly barren without vegetation. It can refer to a place where there's little or no rain, and as a result, the soil is cracked for lack of moisture. This is a reminder, isn't it, that the God who rides upon the clouds controls those clouds. The God who lives in the heavens can send down that rain or he can withhold it. Unless we think that's not in view here, look down at verse 8. The earth quaked, the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Verse 9, you shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. That rain comes in God's blessing. It is withheld, obviously not always, because God even sends his rain in the just and the unjust, but when there's rebellious, particularly in Israel, when there was rebellion against God, he did withhold the rain as a testimony to where they got their rain from so that they turned back to him. He did so in the days of David. David understood that. Psalm 107 Verse 33 says, He changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. Now just think about that and think about what Egypt looked like when Israel left. What did Egypt look like when Israel left the land? It was decimated. Because Pharaoh rebelled and rebelled and rebelled and hardened his heart and rebelled against God. And as a result, the effects could be visibly seen upon that land. Not only the loss of life, but the land itself decimated because of rebellion. You see, this God who is on the march in this psalm is a holy God. There is none like him. And he is worthy of our praise. And as his servants, as his children rejoice in him, there are so many things, aren't there, to praise the Lord for. And I wish we could just keep on going in this psalm. I hope that as we continue on in the psalm that we will reflect upon the goodness, the graciousness, the greatness, the transcendence of our God, and that it will lead us to worship him in a greater way. I want to close the service tonight with a singing of a hymn. I I was thinking about this psalm, thinking certainly I think we were going to make it through even half of it tonight. But when the children of Israel uh, went up to Jerusalem, they sang songs together. And it was, there's something about being together and doing that. Not just singing alone or solo, but praising the Lord. And I just want to sing tonight 
Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. Song that I hope is precious to us. Number 219. 219. Let's stand together and sing. Give testimony to our great God and the fellowship that we have with one another around him. Number 219.